In the criminal justice system, media law-based bits are considered especially heinous. In Shame Watch, the podcasters who talk about these bits are members of a podcast known as Shame Watch. This is that bit. Episode 87. Here we are. Episode uh, 87. It is very hot in my room. Oh, and episode 93 is apparently movie politics. Yep. And apparently episode 94 is uncut gems with Mason. Yep. Uh, I also put, uh, don't don't say in case this part of the episode gets out, but it's a surprise for the viewers, but I put out what uh, we're watching at episode 100. Well, let's not allude to it. Aaron, bleep this out because the movie is But Aaron, you've got to beep that part out. Yeah. This part's not going to be in it. No, you've got to keep this in now because we're yeah. talking about Aaron. Please don't, please don't leave this in. But now you have to leave it in. But also, beep out Genu- the part. Genuinely, do bleep that out because we want it to be a surprise to the viewers. Yeah, you want to, so you, you want to beep out that our episode one hundred is because if they so hear that it's don't let people pe- know that episode one hundred is right. You have to beep that out. You know, even, episode- if, even if we mention like you should bleep that out too. Or- yeah, beep that out. Bleep that uh, out. Bleep that out. Beat that out. You don't have the rights. Anything to do with or Oh, bleep uh, all of it out. Uh, yeah. Oh, Kenny, I was playing in my tea the other day. No, you can't say that. It's... I know. I gotta bleep it out. Beep out the studio, which is Yeah. Uh, oh, that's the same uh, studio that made But I should probably bleep out Right, because of the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, and you should probably bleep out the fact that in order to do promotion for uh, crossed over with yeah, to do an I, appearance. I just watched that episode. But don't bleep out the first part of Tina's name. Right, like you just can, Tina and then bleep. Yeah, bleep out that. Like, bleep out Tina's last name. Like, you can leave the Tina part. Yeah. But bleep out. Because it could be Tina Turner. It could be. And we don't well, but I'm going to bleep out you, Turner so people still don't know which right. No, you right. should, you right. should right. leave right. Tina Turner alone. Welcome to Shame Watch, a guilt-free dive in those massive movie failures that we hate to love. Each week, we look at a movie that either we or our guests love, but society shames them for. We peek in each nook and cranny for every bright spot, keeping the public at bay while watching these movies like the miracles that they are. Today is the long-awaited, the long-anticipated, the monumentous media law episode, episode 87. We're going to talk all the ins out of media law. We're going to just discuss it at length and you know what we're here to serve you i'm james fight uh uh the chief archivist is here who is uh kenny madison chief legal counsel of uh flatfilms.com each week we do one legal case uh and our uh final person today aaron salinas editor at shame watch happy to be here fellas we're, we're one short we're one short today olivia had to take a quick recess uh, as we say in the legal industry, um, yeah. uh, she is recovering for a big interview she has on Tuesday. So everyone wish her luck for Tuesday. Uh, go back in time. Uh, we love you, Olivia. Uh, uh, best of luck. Uh, but today's not about Olivia. Today's about J- media J- law. James, should we explain the context of this bit? You know what, Kenny, go ahead. Uh, in a section that is titled The Context, usually what happens is that uh, I read a review of why someone might feel a little bit of shame about the topic that we cover. We're just covering media law today, uh, which is a bit from, shoot, probably one of the first 20 episodes uh-huh. that we 
did, saying that our episode 87 was going to be about media law. And because we keep thorough documentation, uh, we have finally reached episode 87, which means we are beholden to discuss media law. Do we want to do it? Well, I, I certainly don't. Aaron, do you really want to talk about this? Not particularly, because I've probably broken a lot of these laws. So. Oh, sure. This is what our podcast is preparing for. I am ready. I'm excited. That's, and okay. here we are. Great. Wonderful. This is a strange arc to go from Shrek to here. Don't <laughs> say that, that this is what our entire podcast has been built on. You we know, could be we, talking we... about the Power Rangers comic books, but no, James wants to talk media law. <laughs> I, I, I do have one of the comic books here. James, we can't talk about the uh, Power Rangers comics. We got to talk about media law. Oh, we will. But it's how. So that's actually a good topic. How did Power Rangers. How were they able to transform from uh, a TV show to comic books that is covered in media law? So they probably met with some lawyers and changed their IP, which is intellectual property. <clears throat> so what is media law? Media law is defined as a legal field that relates to legal regulation of the telecommunications industry, information, technology, broadcasting, advertising, and the entertainment industry, oh, censorship, and internet, and online services, among others. So, what does this mean? Well, it means anything you consume, essentially. Certainly. That can include broadcast TV, internet, Mm -hmm. print media, film, music, uh, and anything else that might just involve internet or online streaming as well. Yeah, it, and why is this important? Well, I'm going to answer that. And this is what really the heart of this podcast is all about. Kenny, do you have the, the definition of intellectual property pulled up, or do you need me to read it? I mean, you can read the definition of intellectual property. I have other notes related to intellectual property. Perfect. One of the biggest areas of concern related to media law is intellectual property. This can take form of copyright concerns for original works, trademarks, or different brands, or even parents for media related to technologies or processes. Licensing has been an enormous area of concern in recent years. I literally just pulled up a website. One of the interesting things about media law in in recent history with the changing landscape of what media looks like and the fact that we're shifting from terrestrial broadcasts to so much online streaming is uh, the rights haven't necessarily been negotiated for greater profit participation for the creatives. This is good for us consumers. Uh, This is good for all of us and it helps democratize the ability to make media more widespread. No longer do you have to necessarily sign up for a $100 cable subscription service and instead you can get to be part of the zeitgeist and be part of the water cooler talk by just paying eight bucks a month for Netflix or however much Netflix costs uh, at the moment. Personally, I'm paying for my DVD Netflix service at $15 a month, which has been a good cost savings. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've been paying about twelve ninety nine because I have four screens because uh, I do uh, a bit of a no, no and share my password with friends and family. But because it's such a wild west of online media regulation, uh, that means things like residuals aren't even necessary, uh, necessarily something uh, that actors even get anymore. One of the things that the lovely, wonderful, amazing podcast, Land of the Giants, subtitle, The Netflix Effect, the season two of that podcast goes into, is the fact that actors, their 
working actors are becoming fewer and fewer and a middle class of actors is incredibly difficult to have. Acting as a sustainable career is a lot more difficult because with terrestrial stuff like TV and radio and the like, you could be able to live off of residuals, make a comfortable living and still be able to live. That's not necessarily the case anymore because the profit participation with streaming outfits such as Netflix don't necessarily pay for residuals. So you have to be multitasking if you're an actor or some or a creative of some type. That's mm-hmm. why you see so many actors and, and the like trying to participate podcasting, becoming uh, social media. Uh, yeah. Like a lot of people have well. uh, YouTube channels now. Like Brie Larson just started one. Correct. And additionally, it's also more cost-effective for studios to be able to own their own stuff as opposed to having to pay a constant monthly uh, licensing, or I don't know if it's a monthly licensing fee, but paying a constant licensing fee right. to people that own the airwaves, as opposed to just owning all of your stuff yourself, not having to worry about censorship, not having to worry about the Federal Communications Commission uh, and regulations accidentally breaking censorship. It's just lower cost uh, for studios in general, and it kind of, well, that's good for them. They don't necessarily pass the savings along to the creatives. Well, and I, I mean, I think the biggest thing uh, that people have experienced uh i I don't want to say firsthand but the why owning your own property is so important is marvel right because they sold their stuff a long time ago to save themselves from bankruptcy and had to acquire all their ips back for a long long time and they still don't even have all all of them they still are missing uh spider-man i mean i think that's why the marvel cinematic universe was such a big deal was because it was piecemealing all these IPs together in a shared universe, uh, which really brought up like the issue of like, oh wait, we don't own X Men. How do they fit in this world? Um, so it was just really interesting. Like that was a bold move to do when you didn't own all the IPs. Uh, Aaron, what do you have to say? <clears throat> I'll be honest, fellas. I didn't do a ton of research on this one. I will say, uh, LimeWire ruined probably two computers uh, of the family mm-hmm. um i have bought plenty of dvds from mexico uh where people are walking in front of the camera as it is <laughs> in a movie theater yeah. um i i you know similar songs i i thought i was going to be listening to uh, a little wayne song uh that i downloaded from limewire and the artist Turned is little wayne little wayne he's he's yeah. a little wayne Right, we're saying um, the same thing, Little Wayne. Little Wayne. Right, Little Wayne. Little Wayne. Right, I think Little Wayne. Wayne has a, a good representation. Right, Little Wayne. And uh, yet, it was just three minutes of orgasm noises um, <laughs> because that's how LimeWire uh, rolled. Um, and I, uh, I, I do want to talk more about LimeWire. Uh, how old, like, when did LimeWire happen for you, Aaron? Oh shit! Because <laughs> for me, it was uh, about eighth grade slash freshman year of high school. Yeah, same, same. So maybe seventh grade, maybe. But I don't think I actually did my first download until like eighth grade or freshman year. Right, and and that was such a huge thing because, I mean, now artists aren't getting paid. I mean, they're still getting paid, but uh, there's always that South Park joke where like. It doesn't actually hurt them because they're already rich. Uh, Lars can't sound his gold toilet because uh, Metallica didn't get because you downloaded Metallica song on LimeWire. Um, 
But I remember it being such a weird and complicated thing, LimeWire, whereas, like, I didn't even want to bother. But I knew tons of my friends who were downloading, and that's how they had their entire music library was because of LimeWire. Exactly. And then Spotify just kind of kind of shook up the whole process and streaming in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. Spotify kind of looks like the LimeWire logo. I'll say it. Yeah, Don't yeah, it does. Sneak it, that. Yeah. It does. I remember the one song I got from LimeWire. It was a uh, uh, oh, Billy talent song. Uh, and the audio quality is so bad. Like, yeah. it, it sounds like someone recorded it off of an external device into a microphone. And I still have it. Like, it's still in my library. I could pull it up right now and, like, play it. But it's just, like, or, like, another one. I have uh, uh, All American Rejects. Uh, move along but it's just track two um but yeah light line wire was a huge thing uh not to mention just e- illegally getting film mm-hmm. um i think that was all kind of a part of it my dad would come back from mexico and he'd have just a whole bag full of, of movies um sometimes it was the full thing sometimes they were pretty good uh, other times it was 20 minutes and then it just went to a black screen. So media law is, it needs to exist. I'm not saying it doesn't. Bold stance to take, Aaron. Bold stance to take. I, I also think some of it's kind of silly. Such as? I understand the reasons, but it's it's real money grubbing. Like, especially with like, we all know that, that Spider-Man is in better hands in, in the MCU. Sure. Every, everybody can, can say that. But because of media law because of you know the rights and, and the property it kind of forces us to have shitty spider-man movies uh and, into the spider-verse was pretty great right and but at the same time sony was not putting all of their emphasis or time into into the spider-verse they were just like yeah it, we made it what do you want like no that that's your your star that's your stud of the year mm-hmm. like treat it mm-hmm. as such and they just where it's like, no, we, we got other things going on. So at the at the same time, while creatively Spider-Man might be in better hands uh, if it's within the MCU, at the same time, Disney's practices have been so predatory uh, in regards to trying to pursue this and trying to cut Sony out as much as possible from the stuff that they share. Uh, is that that's genuinely a problem in Disney having such a large chunk uh, recently. Uh, is is a real problem. And the fact that they have been so aggressively purchasing IP, the fact that they purchased Pixar and 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm and Marvel and all of these icons, all of these things, they have such a large chunk and now they're being able to use their monopolistic powers in order to force theater chains to do uh, the things that they want uh, at great cost to the theater chains. For example, uh, with Star Wars The Last Jedi, if in order to have a theater get Star Wars The Last Jedi in general, uh, they had to promise that Star Wars The Last Jedi would be in their biggest auditorium for four weeks. Now, all of us here are big old Star Wars nerds, so mm-hmm. we're like, yeah, absolutely, we wanted to go see Star Wars in the biggest auditorium, period. Right. Uh, but movies take, or not necessarily tank, but movies start performing less and less as time goes on, especially with something that is so front-loaded like a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, those percentages decrease. However, by 
denying access to that large auditoriums for other films. It's kind of locking out the ability for other studios to be able to generate the revenue that they need uh, because they cannot, you, they literally cannot put more butts in seats because Disney has locked this theater into a contract. My, my cynical take is uh, that Disney is making increasingly longer and longer blockbusters uh, in order to shut out possible competition because if something like Avengers Endgame is three hours, three and a half hours, in order to play as many screenings of Avengers Endgame because the demand is so high, they have to pack as many theaters uh, as possible, which means uh, less screens available uh, for other types of movies, which means that your smaller movie has less of a chance of getting it booked at another theater right. uh, because you need more screens for Endgame because the demand is so high in order for theaters to survive. You have to book these increasingly larger and larger blockbusters. It's sour business, and while we're over here going, cool, we get to finally have the finale that we want, at the same time, it's a, it's a, I have, this is just my theory, but the theory happens to fit, like, the, the, the business making of uh, film exhibition. It's, it's right there. You, you, you're closing out other business, and Disney gets to have a bigger par- percentage of the pie. And at, at this point, it, it's an unstoppable train, unfortunately, mm-hmm. with, with Disney. I mean, they're they're booked for Avatar five all the way through twenty twenty eight. I think. I mean that that was before Disney. Uh, that was just James Cameron calling his shot because he's a haver of the second and third highest grossing films of all time, uh, and those weren't franchises; those were just one off shot, right? One one shot. As opposed to Endgame being the juggernaut that it is, and they had to do twenty-two other, twenty-one other movies in order to make sure that it felt like the uh, massive movie event that it is, and it's probably, especially with COVID, now trying uh, cutting cinema so closely the way that it is, the industry is going to condense. I don't think it's going to disappear. There's going to be some movie theaters that come back. Something new is going to happen because movie culture is just a thing. However, it's it's certainly believed like this event is going to have a seismic shift in the way that we consume media mm-hmm. already has had a seismic shift in the way that we consume media media law is not just uh, involving with uh cinema exhibition which is something that i'm personally obsessed with uh it also has to relate to uh regulation of free speech is this kind of touching on things like how disney won't allow like a four-year-old child who passed away of cancer have spider-man on his tombstone what? like that kind of thing yeah yeah, Disney is known for doing that. Like those, I think one of the most recent one is a a, a child who died of, of leukemia. Uh, his father sent a letter to Disney saying, "Hey, my uh, you know my son was a huge Spider-Man fan. We want to put it on his tombstone," and they just said no because Disney is the worst. In, in terms of free speech, anything uh, this is in relation to the regulation of free speech, uh, and specifically the remixing culture, like in YouTube, any video essays, any reaction videos, any of those things, uh, you're able to watch someone do a silly react to a video game trailer, mm-hmm. uh, and they have the ability to do that because they are, or or perhaps just a film scene, they're able to do a react video because it's a complete transformation of the source material into something else. Now, right, which does falls necess- under the parody law, right? Uh, parody or fair use. Fair uh, use, that's, yeah, that's the other one. Because it, it does transform the initial... was it, it transforms it into something completely different. And that's why you can do commentaries and, uh, like you said, react videos, or just straight spoofing it. Yeah, it transforms the intent of, of the piece. Yes, now, sometimes... 
companies such as Disney can decide to enforce that copyright claim. Why? I don't necessarily know. But also sometimes that stuff needs to get enforced, case in point. Uh, a dude by the name of Alec Peters uh, was making a Star Trek fan film called Star Trek Axanar. Uh, and previously, Star Trek fan films and Paramount had been kind of hands off with fan films because people weren't making money on it. Uh, but this guy, Alec Peters, ended up building a complete studio infrastructure based off of this fan film and was able to solicit donations uh, on the basis of, uh, we're making a Star Trek fan film. Now, if you can help uh, us finance the Star Trek fan film by paying us enough cash to be able to build a sustainable studio where they can be able to get more business off of this, then it becomes a problem. Uh, and he got slapped with the lawsuit from Paramount, rightly so, because he was making money off the Star Trek IP without paying them the royalties to make Star Trek content. Right. It, I mean, it's pretty clear how hairy and dicey this can get just when you involve any IP. It always feels like, I'm going to reference Hamilton, uh, everyone's in the room where it happens, and we're like... Are you talking about Alexander Hamilton? Alexander Hamilton. There's a million things he hasn't done. But just you wait. Just you wait. What a bunch of nerds. Uh, while we might be nerds about media law, we're just kind of armchair experts. Uh, so in order for us to get a little bit more enlightenment about the topic of media law, we actually consulted a real-life media lawyer and asked her a couple questions about how to give us a little bit of insight on media law and play that beautiful media footage. Yeah, and we'll cut to that now. Uh, if you would introduce yourselves to our podcast audience... Absolutely. So I'm Elise Zawacki. Um, I am an entertainment attorney in Austin. I have my own solo practice, so it's just me at the moment. Um, but I work with all sorts of creatives, so filmmakers, visual artists, musicians, um, photographers. I had a puppeteer once, which is very exciting for me. Uh, so pretty much anybody in the, in the creative industry, um, that's who I'm working with on a daily basis. You had a chocolatier? A puppeteer. Profiteer, that's different. Puppet, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's vastly different than what I said. I was really excited about the chocolatier. Uh, what kind no, of... I would have loved that, though. <laughs> Thank you so much for humoring me. Uh, but... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in our pre-interview, because that's how this podcast works, you sent me a handy-dandy list of five things that we, the Shane Watch audience, should know about media and entertainment law. And I think the best place at least for us to start, is the different kinds of media and entertainment lawyers. Because, like I've said before, media law, for at least our purposes, is a broad category. But since you're a professional, perhaps you can help us walk us through the different kinds of media and entertainment lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. And so typically with media and entertainment law, um, there's kind of three sets of lawyers. And so we have uh, the talent lawyers, so they're representing the creatives one-on-one, um, people like writers, directors, musicians, actors, um, producers. This is mainly what I'm actually doing. I'm mainly working with the talent um, and, and, you know, I like to say I'm working for the underdog. Uh, we're often going up against the big corporations and trying to get them a, a better deal. Uh, and then on the second level, you have production lawyers. And so they're normally working with a production company um, or the producers that are developing um, the content. So 
uh, financing, um, actual production, and then also the distribution phase of the content. I do a little bit of this, uh, mainly with independent film and music studios, uh, but obviously there's production um, lawyers that are working kind of uh, on that next level where um, they're trying to get big distributions with, with larger companies. And then I guess the third kind of category you have are the in-house lawyers. So they're working for the big guys, uh, HBO, Spotify, Netflix, Sony, um, and the New York Times, and they're all in-house. They're typically on a salary um, and, and work there full-time. So that's kind of the three different ones. And you said that you you work for the underdogs. Uh, what what motivated you to get into this aspect of media law? So I always grew up um, kind of interested in the creative industries. I did a lot of theater growing up. My dad's a DJ. Um, and so I was always surrounded by music um, and a lot of creative people. And so kind of looking for an area of the law to fall into, uh, this just kind of made sense to me. Um, I love working with creatives. Uh, you know, um, creative people are, are just always happy and uh, well, particularly very happy and quirky and inspirational. And so uh, for me, it's awesome to work with people on that level. Is your, do you have a creative family in general? Because you said your dad's a DJ? Yes, yeah, so dad's a DJ. Um, Mum's not very creative, but uh, <laughs> definitely dad. And as I said, I kind of did uh, film and film and theater growing up from a really young age. So was always interested in that. And I kind of got to a point where I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not really good enough to, you know, go on and, and um, be on Broadway or, uh, you know, make a, a famous TV film. So how can I still be involved in something I love, but in a different way? Uh, I have yet to get to the point where I've told myself, look, be realistic. I still think that I'm good enough. Uh, thank you for just being realistic <laughs> about your own talent. So an, another thing that you wanted to clarify, uh, you specifically pulled it out for me, is that media and entertainment lawyers don't just sue people. Is that a common misconception? Absolutely. I think that lawyers, you know, I'm, I'm not naive to the fact that we have a bit of a bad reputation. Um, we're often kind of viewed as being arrogant and intimidating and just trying to go out there to um, catch people out whenever they slightly make a wrong move. And I, I just think it's a little bit of a misconception. Um, you know, definitely suing people is obviously part of being a lawyer. Uh, but for people like me, I mainly focus on transactional issues. And so suing people is definitely not my focus. Um, it's not really even something that I get joy out of. Um, but when I say transactional, I'm kind of working more on contract drafting, contract negotiation, and then protection of intellectual property. So they're my main focuses. As I said, sometimes you have disputes come up that you have to deal with, but um, I'm more on the transactional end. So I always like to point that out. I think a lot of people just think of lawyers always being in court, and that's definitely not something that I do. <laughs> sure. And I think this goes into uh, your other point, uh, media and entertainment law is a developing area because you say that you deal with a lot of the transactional pieces. And I imagine that the media landscape has changed so dramatically with the rise of streaming culture. And, and how do, have you found uh, with contract law and trans, the transactional pieces that you do, how have you found that has a, been changing in this streaming era? Yeah, and I mean, for me, I, luckily, luckily enough, I've grown up with, um, you know, technology changes and I'm, I'm used to streaming and using those sorts of technologies, but definitely a lot of attorneys that have been in the game for a long time, this was a real disruption, having social media, having streaming, 
um, it's really, you know, caused some issues in terms of how attorneys deal um, with entertainment law um, because they were so focused on traditional media structures and distribution channels. And now we just have so much more out there. We have user content that is so hard to track and hard to control for the owner, um, and it brings its own challenges. So, um, you know, I think particularly at the moment, the key areas, like you said, is, is streaming, um, using music on, on social media platforms. TikTok at the moment is, um, you know, its own thing. And then also, of course, net neutrality uh, is a big issue that, that a lot of people are focusing on. Uh, in in regards to TikTok, because that is the new social media that is kind of taking everything by storm, and you said that there's been yeah. some legal challenges uh, around there, What such as? So in particular with the music on TikTok um, and licensing, so there was kind of a similar issue when Spotify was first released. They technically weren't getting the correct licenses from um, the copyright owners in the music. And so there were a number of debates where, um, you know, royalties had to go back and be collected and they had to negotiate with um, the performing rights organizations such as BMI and ASCAP in order to come to a deal and make sure that they were paying um, the copyright owners properly. And so that's the artist or the label or the publisher. Uh, and so we're kind of seeing that same situation take place with TikTok. Uh, and, you know, because they don't currently have a large U.S. presence, I just think that there's a little bit more uh, miscommunication going on there and a little bit more of butting heads. Um, I know they're kind of trying to get uh, all of the music license properly and make sure that the artists and the owners are getting their royalties, but with new technology, it just comes a whole new um, kind of ballgame. <laughs> because it's still such a Wild West area in terms of, and especially with the issue of ownership and there is... Exactly. Yeah, and just the way that royalties are paid out, especially in the music industry, is um, very complicated. Uh, you know, even as an entertainment attorney, when I look at royalty statements, it's you know, it's a it's completely um, unreadable, and you kind of don't really know what royalties are being paid out. Why? Um, there's no consistent, uh, you know, typically no consistent format of how those royalties are paid, and so it's up to um, the companies paying them out to have their calculations and pay them out. And the only way you can get to the bottom of whether you were really paid properly is to audit them. And obviously that's expensive and, and time consuming for, for the artist. And finally here, uh, and you put this in big quotes, uh, media and entertainment law is definitely the quote unquote fun law. Uh, Elise, what does fun law mean to you? <laughs> so I have this joke with my husband. He's an attorney as well. Um, and he, he works for the government. And so I always like to say that he does the boring law and I get to do the fun law. Um, I'm the one that's kind of, you know, get, get to deal with the actors and the musicians and we get to go to shows and, and see live previews, um, of films. And so it's kind of just a perk of the job. Um, as I kind of said earlier, working with creatives is really something that I enjoy. Um, you know, I'm typically catching people at an exciting time of their life where they're launching a new project um, and trying to, you know, get their creativity out, whereas that's in real contrast to most other areas of the law where you're dealing with people who are going through really incredibly difficult situations. Um, and I think not only for the person that's involved in that situation, but the attorney as well, that can be really emotionally draining. Um, so I like to say I do the fun more. <laughs> 
Uh, but what I'm getting most of all is that you think that your husband is boring. Uh, <laughs> I think his job is boring. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Anything else that you think is absolutely uh, necessary for us to know about entertainment law and media law in general that just the public doesn't know? Um, I think probably just how wide of a range of legal issues are kind of involved in the media and entertainment um, industries. Uh, you know, media and entertainment law are typically bundled together um, when you're talking about a media and entertainment lawyer, but media law is kind of a little bit more um, focused on journalistic issues uh, such as print and TV news reporting and advertising and then entertainment law is a little bit more on the creative side so we're talking more about the actual production of movies music visual art photography and book writing um, but between the two of them there is such a wide range of issues that come into play so obviously we have copyright and trademark which you hear the most about but there's also defamation the right to control your name image and likeness um, freedom of information, advertising laws, right to privacy, and then you also have business law and employment law issues that are coming into play. So it really is very, um, very wide, and a lot of a lot of things going on. And uh, you're at the forefront of all of it, helping fight for the underdogs out in the creative field. Absolutely, yeah, try my best. Uh, Elise, we can't thank you enough. Uh, Thank you so, so much. Uh, Yeah, you're an absolute delight. Hopefully we talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And yeah, I hope to join you again soon. Yeah. Wow, that that was really good. Kenny, thank you so much for doing that. I hope, I know you're a huge fan of the pod. Hope to, hope to bring you back. Bring us a movie you want us to watch and, uh, and we'll watch it with you. What what if she just like totally just brings on that? Actually, guys, what y'all are doing is kind of illegal. Podcast reviews of film is <laughs> is not okay. Ooh, but it's transformative. Uh, <laughs> what if what if she does the thing that one of the co-owners of Quibi does did, which uh, the co-owner of Quibi said, "I don't really like to watch things." And then, <laughs> and then she said, "My favorite TV show right now is Grant." What? On History Channel, it's a TV show about Ulysses S. Grant. What? <laughs> I mean, that's it's fair. it's an ins- it's an insane interview. You need to watch it. Uh, Quibi. Uh, thank you to our sponsor, Quibi. <laughs> oh, I wish that'd be great. Uh, Aaron, reach out to him. Well, guys, if you were wondering how far we'll go for a bit, uh, here you are. Uh, we don't media stop. law. Yeah, I mean, I've still got more to talk about: employment issues, <laughs> contract laws. Torts, well, labor issues, watch. Uh, thank tax you for laws, for bankruptcy, song. immigration issues, insurance regulations. And, and I mean, thank the you fact to that James a film Garcia standard, for our artwork. Like the normal day on a film set is at minimum 12 don't, hours. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Shame Watch on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts in are the found. Film industry, but for some reason, that's not some sort of labor. Uh, do you have suggestions, like questions, if comments, or general Tom Fuller? Tom Fuller, you want to contribute to the pod? Send it our way. Visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Shame Watch Pod so we can talk with you. On like a 40 hour work week like Clint Eastwood, then you're apparently one of the good ones, or someone like Steven Soderbergh. 
that's able to work fast. Finally, you can contribute uh, to our Patreon at patreon.com slash shamewatch. It does cost money to put out superb content like this pod. So even a $1 donation States can make a huge difference. It's very much an exploitive industry because it's, you're overworked and underpaid. Oh, and so much of the beginning labor. Of and getting at $10, into $10 you get a feet pick. Is, at $7, you get behind the scenes. Is at $5, you, probably you need get to the have ju juicy bits before our podcast, what we talk about. At $2, you get shamewatch TV, our marathon episodes, and a bunch of extra content uh, one of the but until next time my watch has now ended dive you at your own risk needed to have a trust fund if you wanted to be a working actor in the first place we haven't listed off the patrons all oh, right i'm sorry uh thank you <laughs> this to is kenny, all gonna be in there thank you to kenny madison there needs to be some sort of alan smith more equitable but it's leander texas Riley Since McPherson. Studios are so Tulsa, okay. So Jennifer Steinberg. Because the profit of Austin, Texas. Perks. So much. Of Austin, uh, Texas. Ian Keegan. To of Gillette, Wyoming. Streaming is such Danny a wild thing. And the fact of, that the San Marcos, entry, Texas. Miranda Suarez. Talked about the map of San Marcos, Texas. In order to survive in the streaming infrastructure, of San Antonio, Texas. Spend so and much Nolan money Barcher. on trying to produce content like Netflix. Until is next time, our watch has now ended. Dive at your own billion risk. dollars in debt. To put that in in perspective, Blockbuster, whenever it folded, was only one billion dollars in debt, as opposed to Netflix, which right now, right. Hey, now, you guys ever think we're going to cover a Nancy Myers film? Ooh. <laughs>